One thing you notice when you visit Buddhist countries like Thailand or Sri Lanka, Burma, is there are certain aspects of the teachings that are very familiar with, in people have a familiarity with them. So particularly something like just the term merit-making punya in Thailand. It's a term you hear all the time, tambun. And this can be useful in the practice that people have a foundation, at least some idea of the concepts and the, they have some values that have come from their Buddhist upbringing and that are around in the culture and society. How much people already understand and know obviously is an individual thing, but you can clearly see there's a general appreciation of certain aspects of the Buddhist teaching. So this, uh, this term merit you hear all the time, it's based on, usually it's taught as the, uh, the 10 ways of making merit, punyagiriyawatu, or punyagiriyawatu. Dhanamai is making merit through the practice of generosity. Silamai, making merit through keeping of precepts, virtuous behavior. Bhavanamaya, merit made through cultivation of jitta pavana, panya pavana. Some of the other ones you don't always hear so often, but they're there. They're like apajayana maya, merit completed or made through the practice of humility, or reverence. So you'll see in Buddhist countries they have a very uh, clear way of showing reverence, humility to the Buddha, the Namada Sangha, to teachers, to spiritual practitioners, to places of worship and so on. Apajayanamaya, the actual words apa means to step aside or avoid. Chaya means uh, reverence, respect. Maya means merit that's completed or made through that action. So stepping aside implies humility, meaning stepping aside, making oneself uh, less important in the presence of something else that's given importance, so like a teacher or an elder or a senior family member in the family life, lay life. You see that how that in our training, the Vinaya training that comes in where you have rules and practices where you show respect by not pushing yourself up front, you, know, you step aside for a senior monk. For a senior monk sits down, you don't stand over them, 
don't even sit on the same seat of them if, if, if they're more very senior. If they're not wearing shoes, you take your shoes off and so on. You see that's where, the, where it's coming from. Merit, wholesome qualities of mind come up when you practice this. And where you watch your maya means merit made through service. So again, you see in monastic training, particularly in Asia, sense of service is very clear sense that this is a, a good thing. Obviously, everybody has their own views and qualities of mind, sometimes more negative and wholesome come up, but generally there's a sense of service is a way that you can bring up wholesome dhammas in your mind and it brings you happiness can, and brings happiness to others. So serving the Sangha, serving teachers, serving the lay community and so on. Then there's the Patidana Mayas, Patana Modana Maya, so like the sharing of merit. And in the Anamodana Maya, recognizing merit that's being made when you see it, your appreciation of others making merit, and the sharing of merit, dedicating it to the dead, family members and others. And there's Dhamma Desana Maya, Dhamma Sawana Maya. So listening to the Dhamma and giving the Dhamma, sharing the Dhamma, is making merit. The last one is Titujukam. Straightening your views, bringing your views in line with the Dhamma is merit. Obviously these ten different forms of merit making can, in a simple sense, could you, you could pretty much, let's say, encompass the whole path. Ajahn Chah used to point out to the lay people quite regularly that your merit is something that's still it's not yet the complete path, it needs to be backed up, supported by kusala dhamma. So you get these two terms, punya and kusala together, used regularly. <coughs> kusala is often translated as cleverness of mind or being smart. Maybe you might say wise, wise, wise behavior. It's needed to support merit-making because merit-making can be something you can still get lost in. And Pochas sometimes will say, people just make merit but don't develop the kusala dhammas. The merit can even kind of completely squash them or flatten them. Meaning they're making merit but without some without full wisdom or understanding of what they're doing. So merit making can still become a cause for the sense of self to arise attached to the good feeling, the happiness and the joy with a sense of self, can crave that, can crave for it when we don't have it, get excited and lost in it when we do have it. Sometimes it can feed conceit and ego and we look down on others who maybe don't have, we feel as much merit as us or not making as much merit as us. Or sometimes it turns into low self-respect, low self-esteem. 
So you hear people say, I've got no merit. I can't meditate. I can't go to the temple. I've got nothing to offer. It can go both ways. But to avoid merit becoming a cause for suffering, you know, we need kusala dhammas. We need the wisdom and wise reflection to guide our merit making and understand its role in the practice. Sometimes Lumpur Cha would talk about how it's the same as meat, particularly in tropical Thailand. The way um, the villagers would preserve meat or fish, they put salt in it as a preservative to stop it going rotten. So meat is like merit, salt is like kusaladhammas, cleverness or wisdom. You need the salt to preserve the meat. Meat without salt can easily be rotten or go off. Sometimes people would ask him, you know, why do we practice or who comes to practice the Dhamma? And Lupacha would say, well, you need wisdom. The real starting point of the practice is the wisdom that sees that we need to overcome dukkha and do something about dukkha. Come to understand it, know it. Uh, remove the causes of dukkha from our heart, from our life. So the real beginning of practice is actually the arising of some wisdom, kusala dhammas, maybe prompted by our own experience of dukkha, seeking a way out, or meeting a teacher, listening to the dhamma. But wisdom is really there right at the beginning of the practice and right, right the way through the practice. The salt preserving all the wholesome karma and the merit we make so that it doesn't turn into something harmful, painful. Or people would ask him, why do we keep the precepts? And he said, well, you need wisdom to keep the precepts. You have to think about it, why you keep them. Why do we keep the Vinaya? Why do we follow the Vinaya training? It's not something that's easy or even natural to us often when we come from a uh, perhaps a more undisciplined lay life or less refined discipline. We may have a general idea of what is virtuous behavior, but monastic training, the monastic vinaya, is something very refined. It's a tool to give us some skills and develop qualities, the right effort and the right understanding to go against all our Achilasis, unwholesome tendencies that arise in, arise in the mind based on greed, anger, delusion and all their offshoots. So it requires wisdom, constant reminder and reflection of why do we keep the Vinaya, why do we train ourselves in the Vinaya to really appreciate the value of it, how we obtain our requisites, how we use them how we restrain our senses, how we con conduct ourselves, body, speech and mind in daily life. Something we have to review until the uh, wisdom starts to become wisdom gained from experience in the practice. It's no longer 
theoretical wisdom, just thinking about it or hearing the Dhamma, but it becomes something that we know for ourselves that it works. The Vinaya training does help us to our, restrain the mind, turn our attention back to the root causes of suffering, greed, anger, and delusion, and gives us means and techniques and tools to actually remove, abandon, restrain, abandon these unwholesome tendencies. Once we practice for a while, we'll, we'll get to really know that, then appreciate the Vinaya training and how it supports the uh, development of samatha, bhavana and vipassana bhavana, and how they all work together. There's one time, famous story of Lumpur Cha, when he was about 50 years old. It was back in the 60s when Lumpur Samedo had just arrived. He took Lumpur Samedo and Lumpur Mahamon, one of his senior disciples, to see some of the teachers. Lumpur Fan, Lumpur Kao, Lumpur Mahabua, on a little Kruba tour. And uh, introducing the monks with him to Lumpur Kao, who was already very old near the end of his life, but still very lucid. Lumpur Cha introduced Ajahn Mahamon, who was already a Maha, been a Pali scholar and teacher in Ubon, and then had, out of faith came to live with Lumpur Cha. Introduced him as Mahamon which kind of sets the tone in Thailand if you're in a, amongst forest monks when it's a maha often there's the suspicion that the maha is somebody who values scholarship and the text but doesn't really practice because we meet, sometimes meet people like that just as forest monks are often uh, the cause of suspicion amongst the scholar monks that they don't really know much about the Pariyati or the Pali but uh, Lumpur Mahamon quickly introduced himself and said, I, I've studied the Pali, but I've stopped now. The word in Isan is sao, means to stop, meaning he's come over to the way of practice now. He's got his foundation of study. Now he's practicing Dhamma Vinaya meditation for liberation. So Lumpur Kao chuckled. And he, uh, he made a reference to a teaching, I think, from the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, do you know the four kinds of weather or clouds, the, the four fat cloud formations? And Jem Mahamon, the young Ajahn Mahamon, knew it, but he said he didn't want to lose the opportunity for a teaching. He said uh, he, he vaguely remembers the, the, the heading of the four kinds of clouds but can't, can't remember fully so that Lumpur Kao could then expand on them. And Lumpur Kao went on to talk about how there's the clouds that bring thunder but no rain. You get that sometimes here. We get a lot of different strange weather patterns and quite often you'll get hear thunder but no actually rain no actual rain falls. And there's the kinds of clouds that bring no thunder but there's rain. The kind of clouds that bring 
thunder and rain, the kind of, kinds of clouds that bring no thunder, no rain. And went on to give the uh, explanation that you know, a lot of thunder but no rain is like somebody who's studied a lot but doesn't practice. Clouds, no thunder but rain, you may be somebody who's very little study scriptural knowledge and maybe lives with a good teacher and they can still practice and become liberated. Thunder and rain, somebody who studied a lot and practiced a lot. No thunder, no rain, somebody, say a lazy monk who doesn't study or practice. The purpose of all that we do, the Vinaya we keep, the merit we make, is always directed towards the development of the practice. You know, the aim of the practice is to develop wisdom, understanding of suffering, its cause and its remedy, so that we can actually experience the end of suffering, cessation of suffering. You might say that's the measure, the gauge of our practice, is it actually leading to the end of suffering? Even if only temporarily, and what are we doing day by day? How are we spending our time? What's our attitude, our approach to the practice? What are the values and principles we hold dear? Sometimes they'd say that somebody who realizes the Dhamma and there's somebody who really loves Nibbana. They want Nibbana. They want the end of suffering. It's not just a token gesture. It's not just a kind of a wink and a nod to the, the scriptures and the practice. But they really love it wholeheartedly. And if you really love something, well, you're ready to sacrifice for it. You're ready to put effort into your practice, ready to give up other things, other attachments, other concerns for the practice. And this is the, the way you know, all the teachers, the forest masters, have encouraged us to practice and really put effort into the practice, sincere effort, however difficult it may seem, whatever the obstacles, they can all be overcome with patient, persistent effort put into the practice. Your right effort is always the effort to abandon unwholesome mental states that have come up, prevent unwholesome mental states that arise, cultivate and bring up wholesome mental states and maintain and develop further the mental, the wholesome mental states that have arisen. But in short, it means that sincere effort in the practice, applying what we've learned, we've heard, and to bringing up, particularly bringing up mindfulness and clear comprehension in daily life, which is what the practice is directing us to do, you know, to keep the Vinaya, it requires us to pay attention to what we're doing, the requisites we use, the duties we need to perform, 
the certain kinds of behavior we need to restrain ourselves against or avoid. Meditation the same, you know, bring up effort to our me meditation object. Bring up effort and maintain the effort. We put a lot of effort into our meditation, maybe sitting and walking for a period of time and maintain some sense of peace, maybe even attain some sense of samadhi. And the mind sets aside the hindrances and experiences some calm, gathers together. But how often do we let that sense of calm fade away after we stop sitting or stop walking? It's even more challenging to maintain the samadhi, the mindfulness, the calm after we've got it and to get it in the first place. You see this is a big part of our practice, seeing how the different parts of the practice support and they're integrated. So that's why there's an emphasis say, on making merit in these different ways. The development of merit and wholesome dhammas in daily life in the way we approach our practice and activities we're involved in and just the way we think has a very supportive effect on how to maintain wholesome states of mind. So maybe how to maintain states of samadhi even, you know, to be, go straight into more unwholesome ways of thinking or behaving and not to get even too intoxicated with even merit making sometimes when we're, we are very peaceful in the practice, calm, then it's time to set aside other even wholesome activities if they're not necessary, some projects and uh, helping lay people and other things. You know, so if you really want to deepen your practice of meditation then Sometimes we have to set aside even merit-making activities, not duties that are you know, something that we, we have to take responsibility for, but you might say the ones where we have choice, we have a choice what to take on, what to do. And sometimes we have to be strong and just set aside certain things, sacrifice even what we call meritorious actions if we want to develop deeper samadhi and then the insight and the wisdom that will come from it. So you see sometimes monks, they stop talking, they go back to their kuti, they don't socialize much, they don't seem to be doing very much productive on the outside for periods of time. But if they're using their time wisely to keep bringing out mindfulness, reflect on the Dhamma, well that's okay, maybe they really can use that situation well. Other times we do need the meritorious actions to help us get through periods where all the samadhi has gone. Maybe we're full of doubts, uncertainty, or just different negative states of mind. Well, we can also use meritorious kinds of actions to help us. The service, the acharya vata, the study. That's part of our wisdom to know how to manage our time manage our practice so that we can really benefit from our situation. And sometimes that means just setting aside everything other than the most basic duties. 
and setting aside everything else for development of sila samadhi and particularly samadhi and panya. You know, sometimes when the mind is calm, then really use that time to contemplate. You can go right into your mind and investigate these candors. Investigate the body, this sense of identification with the body, which is so automatic, but so doomed because the body is subject to change, aging, sickness, constantly experiencing tiredness and hunger and so on. Really investigate how the body, the nature of the body and the identification with the body is affecting our mind. And the concepts, the ideas we form in our mind about the body, my body, what, you know, how much we can get obsessed with food and comfort, what we need for the body, medicines, sleep and so on. You'll notice some of the great teachers, there's periods where they just set aside all of that. They don't worry too much about medicine and how much they sleep and how much they eat. Obviously over a long period of time that might not be the wise way to go, but in short periods of time you can do it. You just set aside these concerns and see how the mind is, how, it's, how attachments have formed around the body and how sometimes we need to challenge them to set aside and not worry about you know, the kind of food we eat or how much we eat, what medicines we have, how much mental proliferation we have around our body. In the end the body is made up of the four elements and those elements are without an owner. We can do the best for keeping it going, keeping it healthy, but in the end we can't stop them degenerating and breaking up. And that's the nature of this body. So sometimes it's okay to sit and walk when we're tired, and keep sitting and walking. As long as you're not making yourself you know, incredibly sick, it's okay to sit and walk even if you feel cold or tired or you've got some pain in your legs. You use the situation to learn and see where your craving and attachment arises around the body. And the ideas we have. You know, this body is a collection of, you might say, anonymous elements that have come together through the power of karma, but in the end, they're just—they're not anything. They don't—they're not owned by anybody. They don't belong to anybody. They will break apart. They will die. One day we have to die. Getting the, your understanding really clear on that—you know—in this body is bound to die. I will have to give it up. Same with the people we love or know, family, friends. Their bodies are exactly the same, bound to die. When lust besets the mind, you're the object of your lust, bound to die, just the same. A body can't sustain endless pleasure and lust and joy in its nature. To know that is a great relief once you have that understanding, that insight, the mind is relieved. 
doesn't have to be so concerned about aging, sickness and death. It doesn't have to follow after every lustful thought because it knows this is not leading to any ultimate happiness. Obviously we travel along our path of practice with the body, but what we're training is our wisdom faculty, our attitude, how we look at the body, how we relate to it, and seeing where it's the basis for a lot of mental suffering. And so on through the candors. Sometimes it is nice to be around uh, scholar monks, because often they use the Pali, use the terms uh, regularly in the way they talk. So I remember once staying in a monastery where there was a lot of scholars they were always talking about Nam Rup, Nam Rupa. They weren't talking about Bhikkhu so-and-so or Venerable so-and-so, they were talking about Nam Rupa. At first it was a bit funny, but it's actually quite a useful training. Sometimes just talk about yourself. This is just Nam Rupa. Even though we translate it as name and form, it brings us back to the sense of me, my name, who I am. But it's a very useful way of thinking, you know, just the concept Nama Rupa, and nobody owns Nama, nobody owns Rupa. Obviously on the practical level, conventional reality, well there's people with their names and we use them and we have our personalities and our character traits and what we like and don't like about each other, but in the end it's all just Nama Rupa. Rupa is made up of the for Mahabhuta Rupa, earth, air, fire, water, and they're just anonymous, they don't have a name, don't have a label on them. Nama is the mental faculties, mental qualities that we, our jitters are involved with. Again, bringing up mindfulness and then contemplating this. Where is the you in your Vaitana, you know, the Vaitana that you experience, pleasure, neutral, painful? Where is the person in that? And use your time to contemplate. Say when you're quiet on your own, just contemplate the changing Vaitana through your day, like waves coming into an ocean. Pleasure, neutral, painful, pleasure, neutral, painful, back and forth all the time. Become familiar with observing Vaitana, how it is, nature is to arise and cease. There really isn't anything solid, substantial that you can call you in there. These are just experiences. They have their causes and conditions obviously, but the more we try and control our Vaitana, the more we get lost back into that sense of ownership and the more suffering we're creating in the mind. Sometimes it's useful just to sit, just to walk, just sit back and just accept there will be certain particularly painful waiting that we're not, we don't like, it's not nice in itself, but just keep letting go of the aversion and the opinions we form around the dukkha waiting that arises. Just watch it arising and ceasing. And ask yourself the question, where is the self in that? Where is the happiness in that? 
you attach the pleasant, pleasant way to know, you're setting up this, the conditions to attach to unpleasant dukkha way to know. Can't help it if you keep identifying with the Waitana Kanda as yourself, me, I own this, this is who I am. We are destined to suffer. You can't avoid it. You keep seeking pleasure and trying to hold on to the pleasant feeling and as it breaks up and changes, then you identify with the Dukkha Waitana and suffer with it. To see how much that's controlling us. We think we're in control of our lives, but how much is waiting and controlling us? Constantly moving around, changing posture, to constantly seeking more sense stimulation through our senses or just through the mind with memories and thought formations. How much of it is just seeking pleasure and avoiding pain? You're learning to be more patient and observe this process rather than always getting caught into it. See how perception colors our experience all the time, gives the labels and names and how much of our mental activities we're just with the labels. Obviously we need to use memory and perception and this process to function in the world, it's, it's part of what we learn. We learn how to integrate and relate to other humans in society, in the monastery, in our lives. We use perception, obviously. We can use it to our advantage to understand conventional reality and skillfully interact with the world. But how much, as you meditate, do we just get caught up in memory, perception as a, almost like as an end in itself, endlessly caught up in the details of our mental activity, constantly naming things, remembering things, feeding the mind, giving the, the, the details to the, the Sankara Kanda to have another set of intentions and plans and reactions to things. And really, as we practice mindfulness and contemplating in this way, you see it's, you know, the candors are working together. So if you contemplate the sense bases, you know, there's the eye, the sights, eye consciousness arises and straight away we start naming and labeling. It really, it's just colors coming to the eye. But then immediately we, the shapes and the forms are labeled, identified, and our preferences put on them, what we like, don't like, what we're interested in, what we're not interested in. And it's when you're quiet, sitting, walking meditation, you can really see that at work, that process, and see how our sense contact is giving rise to weight in our perception and forming this sense of me, who I am, all the time, based on this labeling process and the feelings that arise with the sense contact, pleasure and pain, how it forms our deeper attachments, our views, you know, always seeking more of what we like and what we want and trying to move away from what we don't want. And that becomes so ingrained, so habitual, we don't notice it. But when you're meditating 
particularly for longer periods, you can see it at work. See, the, recognize some of the patterns, the habits. And that's where you can really remove a lot of mental suffering from your experience, when you recognize patterns of thought patterns based on sense contact and how we identify with the craving, the attachment that's stimulated. But learning to not just follow the craving and attachment, to be more equanimous towards it, maintain the mindfulness, not always give in to every desire, every attachment, every reaction to every bit of sense contact. But to do that, you have to really learn from your experience, you bring up the awareness and then look and learn. So sometimes it means just watching a desire based on some sense contact, just watching it come up, pass away again, observing it from start to finish so you can really see that sense of self arising but then see it passing away again. It's not that nothing happens, there's nothing there, there's sense contact. There may be a reaction with the Vaitana and the labeling and then the Sankara thought formations forming around after the sense contact. You can see it all at work but then it all passes away. You can see what we call our sense of self. It's just something, it's mental moments. The happy self, the grumpy self, the sleepy self, the excited self, the bored self. You really question what we take of, take up as a self in the mind. This is where we can really get down to see the true nature of this body and mind, as the Buddha was pointing to. It is selfless. Sometimes we have to be brave to face up to this uh, process of where the self keeps forming in our, our experience. Because when you're challenging it in meditation, well, the challenge is often quite hard to face. And many people have that experience where they become very calm, the mindfulness is very sustained. If they're using the breath meditation, it gets to the point where the breath seems to stop moving, the in and out breath fades. And just the knowing, and you hear people describe it like sort of being on the edge of a cliff or being on the edge of something and they can't go further. And what they're usually identifying with, their usual sense of self is disappearing at that point. They can't feel the body. They're not thinking and, and labeling and the normal mental activity has gone very still. The mind is just knowing its object, or even the sense of the breath has gone. It's just the knowing. So this normal sense of self has disappeared, and then people get frightened. It's so new, so unexpected or strange. Often they, they want to return to the familiar, even though that's returning to the causes of suffering, the sense of self attachment, craving. Often we prefer that to 
advancing in the practice. So we, you know, maybe just a thought comes up to take us back to the mind itself, to thought formations, thinking about what we're going to do next, what's going to happen next, what's happening as we meditate. And one thought leads to another, so back, suddenly we're back to a much coarser sense of consciousness and streams of thought come up. Often our own fear and uncertainty can block the practice, comes up, even when you're peaceful. We need to keep the wisdom faculty sharp and keep investigating. Sometimes be a little bit courageous and just stick with it, even though we're not certain, not sure. What supports that courageousness, the ability to let go of various attachments that come up, also this sense of metta, compassion, just goodwill for oneself, for others. It gives the mind a certain good feeling in you know, that you're willing to push on in your practice and to let go of what you might not normally want to let go of. And being willing to let go of different senses, the sense of self that comes up in different ways. If you keep returning to the practice of metta, goodwill for yourself, it's a starting point, then you get a lot of strength from that. If you trust in, say, the Buddha's intention, his intention is coming from wisdom and compassion, our teachers, Lumpocha, and so on, all of that. Basic goodwill, goodwill and compassion, the wish to help others free themselves from suffering. You get a lot of strength from that, the strength to push through dukkha vetana, or the strength to keep practicing when doubt, uncertainty arises, or to let go of certain thought patterns that you've been so familiar with that you never thought you could let go of. As we're practicing more, then these various skillful qualities hopefully are developing. And you can see how they support each other. The making of merit, the listening to Dhamma, the reflecting on the Dhamma, and then using it in your meditation, in your practice. You keep contemplating to actually observe your experience as Dhamma. You know, when the wisdom faculty is being trained well, you're seeing the, your experience as Dhamma rather than always interpreting it as from a place of self, me, myself. You're seeing the candors arising, passing away in different ways, the changing nature of them, the conditioned nature of them. Seeing the body more as elements, seeing memories as memories, feelings as feelings just as feelings, 
thought formations is just thought formations. Sense consciousness is just sense consciousness. True wisdom has a liberating effect on the mind. So even though it seems, well, there's nothing left, what can I ident identify with now? What do I hold on to now? But true wisdom really liberates you from even that desire to hold on to something. And the mind is more at ease just knowing things but without grasping. The more established right view and the wisdom faculty becomes then it gives you something that's a real refuge inside. And that is unshakable and swayable by the various conditions and experiences you have on the outside. It gives you some strength of mind and some peace in the middle of anything that may be coming up, good or bad, in your experience. Once you have some insight, you see, well, these five candors are not self. They don't belong to anyone. They are just what they are. They're conditions that arise and pass away. And the mind that knows that has a great sense of relief because it doesn't have to keep clinging on to that which brings suffering. You have pleasure, but you know it's not yours and it's not permanent. You have pain, you also know it's not yours, not permanent. practice, the more effort we put in and the more opportunity we have for the Dhamma to arise in our hearts. Clear knowing, clear viewing of the way things are. We can break through some of our attachment to concepts, ideas, views and opinions which bother us so much. So for tonight I'll leave the talk there, leave that for your reflection.